So I'm reading out of John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back, no longer went with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yes, one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Um, uh, Can we just thank them one more time for what they do in the kingdom? When Catherine and I graduated college, um, Catherine was a part of a ministry that went into uh, strip clubs and just talked to women and served them a meal. And uh, then obviously living in Las Vegas, we were um, uh, faced with that uh, a lot where, um, yeah, just women in really tough situations. And so I'm really thankful that um, God calls all of us to support in some way, but he calls um, certain people to really give their life to that. And so super thankful, uh, Scarlett, for what you and your team does. Um, It's amazing. Uh, Communication experts say that um, the first five minutes of any talk is the most important And specifically, I have 15 seconds to hook you, and that's the 15 seconds you decide if you're going to listen to me or not, which is super encouraging. And and so you usually don't want to use um, uh, the first part of your message to do some kind of announcement, but I'm going to do that this morning. It's nothing really bad, uh, but I've been going back and forth uh, for months on if I wanted to say this or not, and I'm like, is this just my preference or is this like a value of our church, and, uh, and it was this week that I'm like, no, I think this is a value of our church, um, not just a personal preference because I'm the pastor or I'm a one on the Enneagram or whatever, and it's this. I would love for us to be here in this room at 9.30. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I would love for us to be here in this room at 9.30. I'll give you some practical reasons. None of these shove me over the edge, but it's important to know one Um, there's moments when we're planning the general flow of a service when we're like, oh, we can't do that that early or we can't sing that song that early because, you know, 20% of the room's in here at 9.30. And uh, that's practical, but it's, uh, we can overcome that. There's other moments where it's like, oh, the band, they get here early and they practice uh, three or four songs knowing that one of them is only going to be heard by an audience of one. Um, And so that doesn't feel super respectful. Uh, Also, if you haven't been here at 9.30, we start our service with a moment that we kind of lay everything down and pick up 
worshiping Jesus, and it feels like a, a moment that we get to like really get ready to enter the presence of God, which I think, um, and most people that are in here at 930 have said, man, that's my favorite part of service. And I've thought about all those, and it's like, ah, that's good. Here's why this week I decided, no, I think this is a value, is um, that we say uh, that what happens in this room is practicing for eternity, it's mimicking heaven. If that's true, which we believe that's true, we'd be on time for that. Um, and again, no condemnation, not being heavy-handed. I'm just like, no, that is what we say. And if that's true, if I had an appointment with God, you better believe I would be on time for it. And so um, I'm just going to say, look, the value isn't, oh, we're like a church that's always on time. I think the value is this. We at City Church are hungry. We are hungry for more of God. And I think if that means we roll in, and again, no shame, we roll in at 945, 947, that doesn't communicate hunger. Um, and so the value isn't timeliness. The value is like when people hear about City Church, I hope they hear like it's an authentic family. Um, man, I love the way that they worship. Their pastor's super good looking. But also I hope, I hope that they say, I've heard that church is just hungry for God. And if that's the case, then um, we're going to say no. Like I'm going to be there on time. We get 75 minutes, especially while this other church comes in after us. We get 75 minutes to do what we're going to do in here. And I hate interrupting any conversation that's going on in the family room because that is a value too. It's family. I promise we will not lock the doors Sunday afternoon until all of us have finished all of our conversations and hanging out. We can do that for the rest of Sunday afternoon. We can only do this for 75 minutes. And so it's not going to be perfection if you roll up at 937. Don't just go home. Um, we know that that's not going to be perfection all of the time. But instead of 20%, let's shoot for like 80% uh, of us in this room at 930. Um, because I think that that's a value of being hungry for God. Does that make sense? Does that feel fair? I feel very like pastoral and fatherly. I'm practicing for Esther. I, uh, I was like, no, this is, this is worth it. We're a church that's hungry. So we're going to be here. Um, okay, here's my real hook. I had a best friend growing up and uh, his name was Matt. His name is still Matt. And uh, we grew up, we played on the same basketball team all throughout um, elementary school and middle school and high school. And, uh, and he was the center. He was really tall. He's 6'4 now. And believe it or not, I was not very tall. And I was the point guard. And so Matt and I growing up, he was always like seven, eight, nine inches taller than me. But we became unlikely, but really like best friends um, throughout all of that time. And Matt and I got into all kinds of different things. We became huge fans of the NBA. We got into all kinds of stuff um, in high school and in college. But one thing that we got into specifically in eighth grade was we got really into like geopolitical wars, specifically Desert Storm um, that happened in the early 90s. We got so into like analyzing um, what was happening there by buying the PlayStation game. Um, that's how we got into it. We were obsessed with this game uh, as eighth graders. And we played this all the time, and there was one day in the summer, um, and the way you played this game was you had four people, but Matt and I were on the same team, and so we could control any of the four, he could control any of the four, obviously there were, there's only two of us, and so you had like a leader, communications guy, you had like a machine gunnist, you had a sniper, you had a demolition expert, uh, welcome to church by the way, it's good to see you. And so we are playing this game, and we're all like, all of these players, and you can toggle between any of them. And we had one summer day that was like the perfect Saturday. We woke up. He spent the night at my house, because that's where Desert Storm was. And we had all day Saturday free, until Saturday night when there was a pool party that we were invited to. And uh, these two girls, Haley and Taylor, Haley, Haley was a cute, short girl, and Taylor was a tall, 
cute girl, and so we were so pumped to hang out with these girls because we were um, told by someone else that they liked us, and so it's like, oh, this is going to be a great day, Desert Storm, then the pool party, we're in eighth grade, it's amazing, and, um, and we played all night Friday night, we play all morning Saturday morning, and actually by about 11 a.m., uh, we were like, this pool party couldn't come fast enough because uh, we just kept hitting the same level over and over again, and we couldn't get past it. Couldn't get past it because, um, man, when Matt was on it, like, he's doing something good, I blew it. And uh, when I was sniping or machine gun, whatever I was doing, and Matt would mess something up, and we couldn't get past a certain level. Um, And so the pool party couldn't come fast enough until about mid-afternoon, it just clicked. We started to get it. And we started, we realized that I could not blow up anything. I couldn't be the demolition guy worth anything. And, uh, and Matt was so impatient, and he's sniping all over the place, and he wasn't very good at that. We realized, wait, what if I focused on being the, like, communications guy and the sniper, and you were the machine gunnist and the demolition? And so we started practicing, me with those two, him with those two. And um, we practiced, and we started to pass levels that we had never gotten to before. It was amazing. Five o'clock rolled around, and we're, like, rolling on this game. And we chose to just keep playing the video games. <laughs> all through the rest of the night. And I'd like to tell you it was a classic example of playing hard to get, or we were just so burdened for the Iraqi and the Kuwaiti people that we needed to keep playing. But honestly, it was just priorities. That's what we wanted to do. And um, I was texting Matt to get a couple details right, make sure I had them right. And he texted me back this. He said, uh, because I eventually told him this is for a sermon, FYI. He said, actually, let's not tell people we skipped a pool party with girls to play video games in your basement, which ironically is exactly what I've just done. And um, so Matt and I, we played all night, and uh, we eventually beat the game. Oh, no. (laughs) I know I have you guys clap for some things. That definitely wasn't worth it. I'm sorry. We beat the game, um, and I realized, I stumbled onto a leadership principle. I didn't know the name of it. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know other people were talking about it. But I stumbled onto something in Desert Storm that day um, that I have carried with me for the rest of my life. And I realized, oh, this is like something everybody's talking about. And it's this idea of specialization. It's a leadership principle. Other people call it other things. But it's every book, every podcast. If you want to lead a good team, everyone's talking about specialization in the leadership conversations. Specifically, it's this. Strengthen your strengths and cover, delegate, hire around your weaknesses. And, uh, and for every spiritual book I read, I probably read one leadership book as well because I can't get enough of this stuff. And, um, and it's really important. And my job of leading a church is like I have to be a good leader. And so I'm reading all these leadership books and everybody is talking about this idea of um, don't try to strengthen your weaknesses because you'll never make them like actual strengths. But cover them, delegate them, hire around them, and then make sure you get even better at what God has already gifted you to do. Strengthen your strengths, cover your weaknesses, and if you want to be a good leader, I promise you, if you're going to lead a team, a business, uh, even a family, you probably are going to stumble across, like, you've got to be good at this. If you want to be a good leader, you have to do specialization. But, if you want to be a good follower of Jesus, you have to unlearn specialization. If you want to be a good leader, you have to learn specialization, but if you want to be a good follower of Jesus, you're going to have to unlearn specialization. Um, You already know this, but I'm going to prove it to you. First of all, and I'm going to take a risk, so like be serious here, raise your hand if now that you know that I never learned how to be good at demolition on Desert Storm, raise your hand if that's going to cause you now to leave this church. 
Not for other reasons. Okay. I said be serious. Thank you, you two. Uh, and maybe you will, so bummer. Uh, raise your hand, because uh, this is another thing. I do not know how to run the sound um, in the church. You know, John, Josiah, a bunch of guys know how to do it. I actually don't know how to do it. Raise your hand if that is like a fact that's going to make you leave the church. Okay. Uh, give me a couple more, and some of you at this point are like, make your point or I'm going to leave this church. I will. I promise. <laughs> Um, we have a small staff team. We do some delegation there. That's certainly a part of our team. Raise your hand if um, you learned that I, as the lead pastor of this church, because I'm so busy, I got a lead staff meeting, I got to preach. What if I delegated Bible reading to Caitlin? Like, Caitlin, I need you to read the Bible. I'm not going to read it anymore. Let me know if there's any changes. Raise your hand if you'd leave the church if I no longer read the Bible ever. Or raise your hand if you would. That's not enough, actually. <laughs> uh, raise your hand if you, you know, we just hired Michelle. And uh, part of what she's doing is operations and uh, handling some of the money. What if I said, I need you, Michelle, to be really good at financial integrity. I'm going to delegate that. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to practice it. I still have access to a credit card, the church bank account. I, don't, I can do whatever I want with the money, but you, you need to have integrity. What if I delegated that? Raise your hand if you're still comfortable, like if you would leave the church over that. Raise your hand if I said, Megan, you're so good at um, leading and loving people. I'm going to delegate loving people to you because I'm so busy. I've got these things to do. Anybody going to stick around? What if um, Mandy or Rob, they're both married and on our staff, what if I delegated to them, hey, I want you guys to get really good at being faithful to your spouses? Amen. <laughs> Mandy's husband. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Uh, what if I said to Mandy and Rob, hey, I need you guys to master being, uh, being faithful to your spouse so that I don't have to, so I don't have to practice that. Who still, raise your hand now, if you're still at this church? Right, not even our staff's here. Because you know, you know there's a difference between leadership maturity and spiritual maturity. And in the leadership world, we specialize, we strengthen our strengths, cover our weaknesses, is what you have to do if you're going to lead something. But in spiritual maturity, we know that that goes out the window. Like, of course that isn't true. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to be aware that Jesus will come in and he will confront those weaknesses. It's just who he is. He's, he's proud of us for our strengths, for the strides that we've made in following him, but you better believe Jesus still cares about those areas of you that are not yet discipled. Our discipleship begins where we are not yet discipled. Our discipleship begins where we are not yet discipled, where we are not like Jesus. Ruth Haley Barton says this. This quote is basically a summary of my message today. This is um, strengthening the soul of your leadership. She says, approaches to formation that focus only on those places that we are fairly well along can actually become a defense mechanism for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. Said simply, the good areas... The mature areas of us can actually become a stumbling block for us being discipled in other areas. There, we can look at our strengths and say, okay, I'm, I'm doing great. I've got these um, skills or spiritual disciplines down, and it can actually become a moment where you say, I think I'm okay. And the question is not just, where am I like Jesus? The question is also, where am I unlike Jesus? Because Jesus will. Jesus will come in, and he leads the way of confrontation. He will not just affirm the strengths that you have, but he will come in, and he will confront the areas of you that are not yet submitted to him. And this is what happens, what Scarlett just read in John 6. Jesus has many people following him, way more than 12. 
and he gives a hard teaching, and many of them turn away. And this is what Jesus did. He took a very difficult bar, the Old Testament law, 613 laws, and he said, nah, we're going to raise it. We're going to make it impossible. Not just no adultery, no lust. Not just no murder, no anger. And so Jesus takes a very difficult bar and he raises it to an impossibility. He gives hard teachings and many walked away. And when we're faced with this fact that we now follow or we're trying to follow a man that set a bar at an impossible level, we have two incorrect ways that we can go. One, we can say, no, I will do it. I will perfect following Jesus. I will achieve sinlessness. And, uh, and so we focus, so we put our head down, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. We focus more on our sin or our sin patterns or our spiritual disciplines than we do actually on Jesus. This is a religious mindset. This is not what Jesus is asking us. But then there's the other way, and I'd say this is probably more prevalent in the church today that says, Jesus has big grace, which he does, and then you say, but, and I'll never get there, I'll never be perfect, which you won't, and he's got to forgive me, which he will, and I'm better than most, which could be true, and so we say, I think I'm good. I'm 85% submitted to Jesus. I'm a solid B Christian. And so we can look at one and say, I've got to master this thing. I've got to get this thing down. We go to the other and say, it's big grace. I know there's areas that are probably not quite aligned with the word of God, but that's okay because he has to forgive me and I've done these things well. And then, as always, guys, there's the radical middle that we want to follow, which says, okay, I'm going to put in a little bit of effort myself, but also I recognize that there is boundless, un unwavering grace for me. Because one says, I need all of your effort, none of God. The other says, oh, it's all God. You don't have to do a thing. And it seems like following Jesus begs a little bit of both, the radical middle. There's not a checklist, and it's not a one-time prayer. One side lacks effort. The other side lacks grace. And we just want to say, oh, no, I think it's actually a combination of both of them. And it says in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And this seems crazy because they were following him. They were actually following physical Jesus. They watched him do miracles. They like witnessed this unbelievable love that he had about him. And they still chose to go a different way. A hard teaching and the pressure of the outside world. People actually saw the physical man Jesus and said, ah, I'm not in for that. Guys, gravity always pulls us down. The world always pulls us away. Culture often makes things look okay that are not okay in the kingdom of God. And our response is not culture wars. No, that is not our response. Our response is, I'm going to live a beautifully yet still radically different life. I'm going to live it with grace. We want to follow that radical middle. It's not going to one side or the other. Our discipleship to Jesus begins in those places that we are not yet discipled unto him. The, the best example of this that I can find in Jesus' life is in Mark 10, and if you've read the Bible, it's the story of the rich young ruler. And, uh, and the story is Jesus, he was there, and this um, young, zealous, likely educated, uh, wealthy guy comes up, and he says, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus gives a little checklist, and this is Jesus' big moment, because I see this through church planting phase, and uh, Jesus is about to start a new ministry, a new church, and this guy, he finally has somebody that's not a blue-collar teenage fisherman. This is his moment to, like, capture. And Jesus, like a good leader, he's like, well, I need to make sure there's some morality here. So he says, uh, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, 
you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Finally, ah, this is Jesus' moment. I want you to imagine, this is pre-launch phase for Jesus. About to start his ministry, about to start this new church, and he finally has like a good elder candidate. He's finally got like, oh, a number two. This guy could probably be my like executive pastor, really run the stuff. Because he checks out all of these boxes, and man, he's got influence, and he's young, and he's zealous, and he's energetic. And if you remember a few weeks ago when I taught on the woman at the well, Jesus had this great prime evangelism moment where the woman's ready to receive the news of Jesus, and before he does, he says, actually, go get your husband. And he just blows it, right? Just blows this ministry moment. The whole town gets saved, but it seems like in the moment, he just blows it. And Jesus, he gets a second chance here. He finally has this great elder candidate. And he says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And don't miss that statement. We'll come back to that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And at this time, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus. He blew it. Uh, he had this guy. He's going to be a great leader. And, and Jesus says, ah, oh, no, there's, there's still something I want to talk about. And it's, what's so interesting about Jesus is he, um, he doesn't fawn over the man's strengths or all the things that he's doing right. I think Jesus is proud of that guy, but he's not impressed. And Jesus says, ooh, that. And, um, and the image I get, and it's probably because I've watched way too many Mission Impossible movies, but the image I get is like Jesus does like this spiritual scan of him. And he says, man, he checks all the boxes and he just starts to scan him, you know, like before they get into a vault and they've got to find some creative way to, okay, just me. Um, and they do this like body scan. And Jesus does like, oh, that, that, I need that. It's, uh, let's talk about generosity. Actually, no, it's not generosity, it's your trust. Do you trust me with your money? Jesus doesn't fawn over the strengths, but he says, oh, ah, there's still something that I need. There's still one part of you that I can see right there that's not submitted to me. Jesus modeled the way of confrontation. And sometimes I think we can fall into the trap that I imagine this young man did too, where it's, no, I'm doing a lot of things well. So like, I'm good, right? Um, and maybe it is this actual example. I serve a lot, so I don't need to be generous with my money. I serve a lot, so I don't, I don't need to give. Or maybe for some of us, it's like, no, I do serve and I do give. And I read my Bible on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. I should be able to sleep with whoever I want on Friday. I should be able to drink however much I want on Saturday. I should be able to smoke whatever I want on Sunday. Because that's, that's kind of the balancing act we're doing. But Jesus doesn't seem to lay it out that way. Jesus seems to care about what this guy's got going on, but then he says, oh, but that thing right there, I still need that if you're going to follow me. Um, if, you're, if you've ever prepared a message or a sermon or um, anything like this, you know that you're not immune to the conviction of what you're preaching. And, um, and I got hit by this this week. Uh, I asked a question in our house group, and I, know, I knew I was talking about this this week, and we made space for all of us to listen, and um, the Lord spoke to me. And so just so you know, this is not something I'm preaching at you. I'm preaching it with you. 
I, uh, if I'm looking at my life, spiritual scan, I'm like, man, I think that Catherine and I do a good job. Like, we give well over 10%. Um, I haven't been drunk in a long time. And um, there's a, a moment every Friday morning I have with the Lord that's just like me and him, and it's my day off, and I worship him. Like, I really connect with him. And I felt like the Lord did a spiritual scan, and I think he's proud, but not impressed. And he said, oh, you haven't forgiven everyone, have you? And, uh, and it's true. I am living this message as well. And as the Lord started to speak just Wednesday night in our living room, it's like, oh, there's still a part of me that hasn't yet been fully submitted to Jesus. And I wonder um, how many else, how many of us also have that. Is there an area where if Jesus scanned us and said, oh, but that, I still do want that. I love, and I love this stuff. I love the way you've made strides there, but I need that. So I want to ask two questions, and I really care about both of them, because it's not just to bring us down. I also want us to like, be aware of what is going well. Um, so number one, what's the area Jesus might want to affirm in you? Because Jesus does care about the things we have moved um, towards him on. What are some areas that Jesus might want to affirm in you? What are some areas that you've made some big strides on? And don't discount that that's a real thing. Don't discount that Jesus very much is proud of the areas that we've become more like him. So what are the areas, and seriously, take a moment to think about this. What are the areas in your life that Jesus might affirm in you? And then you knew this one was coming, but I'll ask it. What is the area in your life that Jesus might confront in you? What's the area in your life that Jesus might confront in you? Because the, the lowest point in our character becomes the lid of our kingdom influence. The lowest point in your character becomes the lid of your kingdom influence. And this is, I believe, what we see certainly in the marketplace with um, young or zealous people rising to the top before their character can catch up. I'm almost positive this is what we're seeing with celebrity pastors that are going down as their ministry success and the size and influence of their ministries um, outpaces their character. And we can think, oh, well, if there's success there, then I must have been all of these levels equal. But it's the lowest point in our character that becomes the lid of our kingdom influence. Um, put the, Elias, can you put the picture of the jar up there? The glass jar? That, at times, we could look at the top and say, like, that's a pretty high lid. But everybody knows, you're not filling up this thing with water anywhere past that bottom level. This is a spiritual look at what our lives look like. And some of us are like, man, but I, my, my potential is so high and there's so many things that I do so well up there, but you will not, no matter how powerful the hose, you will not fill that thing past the bottom lip of that jar because your lowest level of character is the lid of your kingdom influence. That's just what following Jesus means. Jesus cares very much not about the areas that we're doing well, but he also cares about the areas that are undiscipled in us. So let's zoom out for a second, and I want to now look at the church and say, what are the couple of areas, if Jesus was to walk in physically in here now, what are a couple areas that Jesus might confront in the Western church or the American church? Number one, and I believe this would be first, is religious superiority. Jesus would confront religious superiority. And there's this great parable that Jesus tells where he um, says uh, a tax collector and a Pharisee, so a, a sinner, the lowest of the low, and the most religious of them all, go to the temple to worship. And he said that the Pharisee got there and he basically was like, I am so glad, Father, thank you that I'm not like him 
or her or him or him. It's definitely not her. And the other one, the, the tax collector, the sinner, comes and he doesn't even look to heaven and he says, Father, forgive me. Have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, it's, it's actually the second one that walks away justified. That, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for outward religious superiority. I'm looking for a humble heart. And I believe if Jesus um, was to confront anything in the Western church today, he might start with religious superiority because we live in such a judgmental time, right? I mean, we are experts at everything. Guys, this is amazing. This is the only time that you can live, uh, the only time in history you can live in your parents' basement rent-free and still weigh in on complicated su Supreme Court cases, Palestine, and uh, intense, deep racial issues. It's the only time. Like, we get to weigh in on those things and still have no responsibility. Also, just so you know, uh, advocating on social media doesn't mean you've actually made a difference yet. And so we want to, we want to oppose just this judgmental, critical spirit that has not only gone outside the world, but also come in the church. We want to oppose being the religious elite. Jesus, I believe, would oppose religious superiority. I, uh, I heard this from another pastor, and I was like, oh, that's, that's true. That's true of me. He said, be careful when you're reading the New Testament. Be careful to not read yourself as the good guy in every story of Jesus. <laughs> I do that. He said, every now and then you might actually be the Pharisee or you might be the person that didn't get it. And so often I, this is me, I read and I'm like, yeah, like why didn't nobody else get it? I would have gotten it if I were them. And actually what's probably true is more often than not, I would have been the guy that didn't get it. I would have been the Pharisee. And so as we read through um, the New Testament, which hopefully we're still doing as a church, and as we read through the Gospels, be careful to not always read yourself in as the guy that got it or the gal that got it. Maybe every now and then read it and like, I wonder where I actually would have fallen in this story. Jesus, I believe, would come against our religious superiority. Back in the 80s, um, and this is just a prime example, the president of the National Evangelical Association was waging war um, in the political sphere against legalizing gay marriage in America. And then it came out, behind closed doors, he was using crystal meth and having sex with gay prostitutes. This is the thing that Jesus would be opposed to. The outward religious superiority while not caring about the inward cleanliness of our hearts. It's a prime example of why so many people have walked away from Jesus. It's not that they're opposed to Jesus, but they're opposed to the, the veneer that we've put on the outside and still not caring about the inside. Number two um, is stubborn sins. If number one is religious superiority, number two is stubborn sins. Jesus, I believe, would confront those sins that we just can't seem to get rid of. And I want to really quickly walk through the life of Peter because Peter had this happen to him. The night before Jesus was crucified, um, Peter you know, pulls Jesus aside and said, hey, let's just be honest. These guys... They're all super flaky. I got your back. And Jesus says, oh man, I love that. It's so good. Before the end of tonight, uh, you're going to deny me three times. And he does. He does. And so Jesus is um, crucified and Peter's left broken in the midst of big sin. Now it's at this moment, depending on what tradition you come from, that you would have responses to here's what Peter needs to do to get restored. Uh, our dear, my dear, evangelical brothers and sisters would say, man, he just needs to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and draw close to him. And luckily, Peter does that. He, uh, Jesus is resurrected, sorry, sorry, spoiler alert. 
Uh, he's resurrected, and he lives life on earth. And for 40 days, Peter gets to interact with him. And one time he has breakfast with Peter on the beach, and he forgives Peter. And so Peter gets to live 40 days close to Jesus, and he's actually forgiven by him. Now, another tradition, our dear friends, the Charismatics, they would say, no, 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 no. Peter needs the fire of God. Ha <laughs> ha. Fire, wind, tongues, glory, all of it. And he's going to encounter the presence of God, and that's what's going to heal Peter. That's what's going to get him back to where he needs to go. And luckily, also, Peter had that experience. Pentecostals, named after Pentecost, Peter was there. Praise God. Tongues of fire fall, and the wind of the Holy Spirit comes, and Peter is in the room when that happens. And so, luckily, Peter has experienced, but we're not sure which one's going to work. Luckily, Peter's experienced both, and hopefully one of those two got rid of this stubborn sin that couldn't get out of Peter's life, which is fear of man. He was afraid, of, he was afraid what other people would think. There in Acts 10, Peter has this vision where God says, hey, from now on in this new covenant, there is no longer going to be any ethnicity that's better than any other. And in Acts 11, there's a revival in a city called Antioch, and it becomes the first multicultural church. And Peter goes to visit Antioch. This is years after Pentecost, years after Jesus restores him. And I want you to hear what Paul says about Peter's visit to Antioch. He said, when Cephas, or Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the, circum the circumcision group. So Paul confronts Peter because there is still fear of man in him. It wasn't drained out it wasn't burned out, all of those experiences, and Peter is still experiencing this stubborn sin that can't be removed from his life, which is fear of man. And, uh, and we see now through uh, Peter's, a couple of letters that Peter writes, and eventually how his life ends, that I think it got rid of. Jesus finally was able to have access to the root of Peter's heart, and he is crucified, likely naked, in front of all kinds of people to scorn and jeer at him upside down on a cross. The fear of man was finally out of Peter. But it's because Jesus finally had access to start to dig into those deep parts of his life. It wasn't the glory and fire. It wasn't even receiving forgiveness. He had to give Jesus even more access to the depth of his heart. And so I believe Jesus would not only confront religious superiority, but he would still care about those stubborn sins that we can't seem to get rid of. And just because we've tried before or because we've done well in other areas doesn't mean that God has stopped caring about those dark areas of our heart that we haven't yet submitted to him. Jesus mastered this. Jesus mastered the way of confrontation, but Jesus' confrontation was always in love. It said that with the, the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And Jesus looks at you and loves you. And I want to stop right there. Like, before we move on to, like, where is the thing in my heart? I need to remember. Wednesday night, I need to remember. Jesus first looks at me and loves me. And that's the motivation for him to say, oh, but that's not quite as it should be. And Jesus looks at you, and he loves you. And confrontation by Jesus is good. It's good for the world. It's good for the church. It's good for you. And Jesus mastered and modeled the way of confrontation. Uh, this is the last thing I want to share is um, if you know anything about King David from the Bible, you know that he was a man after God's own heart, such a wonderful leader, but David blew it. 
David really blew it. And uh, David slept with his friend's wife, got her pregnant, killed his friend, and then lied about it. And so we're just going to assume, like, he blew it worse than any of us ever have. And, uh, and finally, he gets called out by his prophetic friend, Nathan. And I love this painting um, by Angelica Kaufman. It's a picture of David and Nathan. And you can see um, Nathan is in all-out confrontation, like the, the standing over and the pointing of the finger. And I love the response that we can see just in David's um, body. He's like, oh, you got me. I am that man. You've absolutely caught me. And Nathaniel is all-out confrontation, but David's response is humility and repentance. And the thing about this story is the penalty for murder and for adultery was death. So David was done. This was the end. But God. But God had mercy on him. And because David responded in humility and repentance, God gave him a second chance, and he was restored to leading as king. But it's because first he was confronted by God, and his response was humility and repentance. And so this morning, we're going to do the same. Um, We're going to have a moment to just say, Lord, we want to be like King David. Because David, although he blew it, he still was able to be used by God because he responded humbly. God could trust David. And we want to be a church that God can trust as well. I want to be a person that God can trust. And so I want us to just ask the very simple question, Lord, when you scan the spirit of my life, what are you looking at? Lord, what area of my life is not yet fully submitted to you? If he was going to look, and what would he be pointing at? For the rich young ruler, it was generosity and trust. What's the area that God would be pointing at in you? And then we want to spend the rest of this morning, today, this week, thinking, okay, Lord, how can I change that? What's the, what's the action step I want to take to see myself come more under the kingship of Jesus? So I'm about to read Psalm 51, um, which is basically David's journal. It's David's journal after he gets caught. This, we get like to read his journal after he's had this moment with Nathan. And I want us to hear what David is saying. And, uh, and also, as I start to read this and as the band starts to play, um, I really want to uh, give us the invitation. The front is open. I think some of us need to probably change our posture to represent a change in our heart. We have um, the Lord's table available in all four corners. There's going to be people to pray in all four corners. These people want to pray for you. Don't do this alone. Um, But as I start to read this, I want to give you permission to just move around. We don't have to stay put in our pews. We want to respond to what God's doing. Lord, where in me is not like you? And now I want you to listen to David's response as he's moving towards God. This is some of Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean of my guilt. Purify me from sin. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back the joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So let's take some time and Um, for us to move around the room, for us to respond however we want. But let's ask the Lord, Lord, where is there something in me that's not like you? Is there any offensive way in me? And God, I'm dedicated to becoming totally and completely submitted to you.